Romans, not unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does, does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might play, display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all that I might display in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for, for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Diane. So today is week five in a series of sermons that, of questions that you have asked. And this week's question is, there are a lot of examples of killing in the name of God or for God. Israel has killed many in pursuit of a holy state. David killed many. Many examples of killing are in the Bible. Then there is, then there is the commandment, thou shalt not kill. How do we reconcile this? That's a question that many have asked. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God's orders the, uh, God orders the Israelites to completely destroy the seven nations of Canaan without mercy. So the conquest began at Jericho with the killing of every man, woman, and child in the city. In 1 Samuel 15, God orders King Saul to kill every man, woman, child, and even the animals of the Amalekites. In 2 Samuel 8, David kills thousands of his enemies in war, apparently under God's sanction. Now, commandment number six is better translated, you shall not murder. In the original languages, the word also includes causing death through carelessness or negligence. There's a different word for killing. But, uh, why all the killing? So I want to start by placing the question of the Old Testament violence in its context, the Old Testament world. Because this is where the things that we are talking about took place. Again, this does not answer the question that we are asking, but it will color in the lines a little bit. We need to see the picture a little more clearly before we start asking what is going on in that picture. 
now, we live in a Western culture um, that hates war. It is to be avoided, except in most dire circumstances. In fact, many uh, would say there is no circumstance dire enough to require war. But no Israelite would have looked around and wondered why there was so much violence in the world around him. Violence and war was a reality in the ancient world, uh, in, in the world in which the ancients lived. Quite literally, it was often kill or be killed. Peoples and nations, at a matter of course, fought to expand their territory or fought to defend their territory. Now, war was not constant, and for the most part, people lived relatively peaceful lives in their own homes or on their land, but neither was warfare uncommon. And at the time where gods were local, and each people had their own kind of patron gods, and gods were honored only when they were proved to be more powerful than other gods. Um, this is a reality, by the way, behind the place in Egypt. When Pharaoh asked, who is the Lord, who is Yahweh, that I should obey him? Pharaoh said, like, we have dozens of gods. We never, we haven't heard of this Yahweh. Pharaoh, uh, sorry, God proceeded to hold up the Egyptian gods to ridicule one by one, ending with the god, Pharaoh himself. Then Pharaoh knew who God was. And so too, among the nations that would surround Israel, God would be serving notice that the God of Israel was the God above all gods. So when Israel got to Jericho, Rahab, a resident of Jericho, told the two Israelite spies that everyone knew what God had done in Egypt, and as a result, they were melting with fear. So these were the raw materials with which God would work out his plan to establish his covenant people in the midst of pagan nations. So perhaps people living a thousand years from now will look back on our era and say, they took the land of the natives, either by force or squatters' rights. They all drove one or more cars. They built factories that poisoned the air. They lived lives of unparalleled luxury, while hundreds of millions across the world were starving. How could God have possibly been present in such a society? How could he have blessed at that time? In that this is a reality in which people live here and now and in which God works and his kingdom advances. Now, this is not, of course, an answer to our question, but it at least provides some of the context in which the question we're asking is set. Violence, a recognition of God's worth only by the power he exercised, that's, that's the reality of the Old Testament. So from there, we can begin to ask the question, why all the killing in the Old Testament? And there are a number of factors that come into play concerning the violence of God in the Old Testament. The first is divine judgment and divine goodness. Okay? Divine judgment and divine goodness. Now, how can I say goodness when we're talking about this kind of thing? 
um, chemotherapy and radiation is brutal on a body. But what is the treatment designed to do? Kill the cancer. Sometimes a doctor will have to do violence to a body in order to do good. We live in a society that seeks to be just. We have officers to enforce certain laws that we deem necessary to live in a secure and civilized manner with one another. If somebody breaks one of those commandments, they are judged. In violent crimes, armed robbery, assault, rape, murder, are judged particularly harshly when the system is just. And those judgments we make, we make because we agree that it is good for the rest of us to have such a person removed from society. And the one who hands down the sentence, we even call them a judge. God is a just judge. And every act of violence that God either ordains or carried out himself was an act of divine judgment. But it was not just judgment for its own sake. God's judgment was always for the sake of the good. Now, the command for Israel to eradicate from Canaan the people that lived there, genocide on mass scale, centuries before, God had covenanted to give this land to Abraham and his descendants. Now, those descendants, a nation themselves, have left slavery in Egypt and have made their way to the land that God has promised them. But there were already people living there. So now what? They're conquered the land. Now, is God just simply giving the Israelites living space? Kill the inhabitants so that you can live here? Watch the screen for a minute. You're reading the Bible again. Yep. That usually means you're developing a big question. Yep. Okay, what is it? Lots of people died. What do you mean? In all those battles, the Israelites killed lots of people. Did God want them to die? Oh my, that is a very tricky question. I guess it's time for... Tricky Bits with Buck Buck isn't here right now. Please leave a message after the beep. Beep! And now it's time for Tricky Bits with Bill. This is one of the trickiest bits in the whole Bible. When the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, there were already people living there, and they didn't want to leave. Most of those people eventually were killed by the Israelites. So why was it okay for the Israelites to take land from other people? And how could it possibly be okay for the Israelites to kill them to get it? That's right. Killing and stealing are things we aren't supposed to do. Well, first, taking the land. Whose land was it? It belonged to the people who lived there. Really? Who made the land? Who made the whole world? Who made the universe? God did. Oh, right. So whose land was it? It was God's. Right. Say you have a toy. You let your friend play with your toy. But after a while, another friend asks if they can try the toy. So you take it back and let your other friend try it. Do you have the right to do that? Sure you do. It's your toy. 
Right. And if your friend refuses to give the toy back, who is wrong? Your friend is. It wasn't his toy in the first place. Exactly. If the entire universe belongs to God, God has every right to take a piece of land from one group of people and give it to another. Well, that makes sense. But what about the killing? Right. Why did those people deserve to die? This is the trickiest part of all. But it all comes down to sin. Who has sinned? Adam and Eve started it, but then, well, everybody. Right. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says we have all sinned and fall short of God's standard, God's glory. God has a standard for holiness, for how we should behave. Some of us can do better than others, and we feel pretty good about ourselves. But God's standard is so high, none of us can even come close. So we're all sinners. That's right. You, me, everyone. And what do we deserve when we sin against a holy God? What have we earned? I'm thinking not a time out, right? That's right. Paul says the wages of sin, what we've earned when we sin against a holy God, is death. So we all have earned death. Yep. So the Egyptians who were killed by the plagues. They got what they had earned. And the Israelites who were swallowed by the ground. They got what they had earned. And the people of Canaan who stood against God, who said he couldn't have that land, who had worshipped other gods, who had even sacrificed their children to other gods. They got what they had earned. That's right. So the real question isn't why did the people of Canaan get what they deserve? The real question is, why haven't we? You're reading the Bible again. There you have it. So when the Israelites arrived at the port of Canaan, the land of the Amorites, the sin of the Amorites was complete. Their sin has reached its full measure. The time had come to judge. And the Israelites were to be the instruments of that judgment. In its world, the wicked paganism of Canaan was unparalleled. John Wenham, in his book, The Goodness of God, writes this. The Old Testament directs its bitterest venom against Baalism and the cult of Molech. Baalism was a fertility cult in which sexual license was glorified as something religious and meritorious. There were holy prostitutes, male and female, for the gratification of the worshipers. And the wife of Baal, named Anath, loved war. This is from a poem about her. Deciding on a massacre, she smote and slew from seacoast to sunrise. Filling her temple with men, she barred the jaws and hurled at him, at him chairs, tables, and footstools. Soon she waded up in blood to her knees, nay, up to her neck. Her liver swelled with laughter. Her heart was full of joy. She then washed her hands in gore and proceeded to other occupations. This is a goddess killing for the sheer pleasure of it. And this is a goddess worshipped in Canaan. The worship of Molech included child sacrifice. The arms of the hollow idol were held in front in kind of cradling position. 
A fire was kindled inside the idol, and when the arms were red hot, a child was placed in those arms as a sacrifice. Now, even today, when someone tortures a child, we say, there's no punishment too great for this kind of crime. But what about the nation that makes this a regular part of their worship? This was the religious life of the Canaanites. These were the people who inhabited the land to which Israel came. And whatever we think of the nature of the judgment of God visited upon them, let us at least not think, not see them as a nation of peaceful farmers upon whom the hordes of Israel descended, like Attila's Huns. So here we have cases of God's judgment and goodness, judgment of sin and goodness toward his people. The second factor we consider is an extension of that last part of that statement, the preservation of Israel, not just good for his people, but the preservation of his people. Israel was a unique people of God. God had entered into a covenant with them, a solemn contractual promise. God had said that through a, through a nation of Abraham's descendants, he would bring blessing to the world. God reaffirmed that covenant at Mount Sinai in what had all the protocols, protocols of his covenant-making ceremony. There, God promised that he would be Israel's God, and Israel promised that he would be his people. And it is through this nation of Israel that God would reveal himself to the nations and bring blessing. Now, what would you do for those who are dearest to you? If a life of your best friend or spouse or child was threatened by someone's violent intent, how far would you go to save their life? And what if you had to do that in a society and in a time where there was no law, no law to protect, no law to restrain. That was precisely Israel's situation and the context in which God acted. So God fought for Israel and against Israel's enemies. And so God took upon himself the responsibility of caring for and protecting his people. And his commitment to that promise quickly became self-evident. In Egypt, the plagues from the Amalekites, um, food and water in the desert, and so on. And extreme threats to Israel's very existence as a nation. Be beyond even the physical preservation was their moral preservation. God was establishing in Israel a holy nation that would be a visible expression of the holy God. This nation would be unlike any other, a light for the Gentiles in the dark world. The joyful but reverend worship of the one true God, not the violence and orgies of the worship of many gods. The ethical life reflected of the character of God, not the sacrifice of children to appease the gods or earn their favor. And if Israel's life became enmeshed with that of the Amorites or the Amalekites or others, 
there would be an inevitable influence that would decay the moral and holy center of God's people. And God's command to remove that, that cancer showed both the monstrosity of Canaan's sin and the lengths to which God would go to protect his holy people from moral cancer. So what if Israel shared that cancer? The tragedy is, however, that Israel weakened in their resolve to follow God's directive. They repeatedly jumped into Canaan's pagan culture. This became so much a part of their century, of their story, sorry, that centuries later, kings of Judah, like Ahaz, burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. <clears throat> and his grandson Manasseh, who did the same things, also erected altars for Baal. So Israel's history was one long breaching of their covenant. And although God remained almost fanatically faithful, jumping to rescue and to bless whenever there was a faintest glimmer of repentance, he also would not let them continually violate his holiness and his perfection and his reputation. And when their sin had reached its full measure, he then judged them as well. So, so far we've considered the judgment and goodness of God and God's commitment to preserve Israel physically, which they always wanted, and morally, which they didn't want so much. The third thing we're thinking about is this. In mandating Israel wiping out of the Canaanite people, specifically, what choice did God have? I don't want to make it sound like God is helpless in the face of any circumstance, but it is good for us to look at other options against God's actual decisions. Maybe God could have converted the Canaanites en masse rather than acting so severely to judge them for their wickedness. Well, could he have? To do that, he would be simply overriding the inclinations of their hearts, overriding their ability to choose. God honors the ability to choose, an ability he gave us in the first place. But he does not interfere with the consequences of our choices either. You make choices, he says, but know that your choices have consequences and impact other people. If I have a bad day, and I'm so angry at my bad day that on my way home, I decide to take it out on someone and I run over a pedestrian. God will not make it so that once I've hit him and run him over, he just gets up unhurt, brushes himself off, and carries on. Because then my choices no longer matter, do they? I can do what I want with impunity with no worries that my actions will have any negative consequences. But he can't have it both ways. God cannot and does not override our bad choices, but not our good choices. 
He does not magically convert or change the inclinations or hearts of a nation either. He does not make a nation suddenly choose differently. They they would not be choosing at all, would they? So none of us wants a God who in essence says, I know you chose this, but it doesn't matter. You're going to do that. So Canaan's whole culture became the sum of its choices over the years until it was time to judge. And God's choices were to remove their ability to choose, to let their evil continue to increase, or to judge. And he judged. Maybe God could have pushed them out of the land just to make room for Israel. Why kill them? Well, we've seen the necessity of judgment, but also, if he had forced them out, they would have been a people in search of a land, and they would have conquered somebody to get that land, and there would have been slaughter. So either way, God's choice to judge or evict leads to the violent death of a nation. Maybe God could just have killed them humanely, having them quietly die in their sleep or something. Maybe. And this I find difficult to answer, and perhaps I don't need to. God is sovereign and needs no defense. But if he had killed them all humanely, that wouldn't necessarily solve our problem. People would still be horrified at a God who would kill tens of thousands of people at one stroke. Had a nation in our day killed a massive number of people, no matter how humanely, we'd be horrified. So had God done it, we'd be no less horrified. And we would be asking the same questions. Now, everything that I've said to this point is only part of the equation. And truth be told, it's the least part. It's the tip of the iceberg with 90% of which lies below the surface, beyond what we can see. There is mystery here, a part of God's character and actions and motivations that we cannot see. We as Christians have always been mystified at God's good actions toward us. We don't know why he loves us. Sometimes we pray, thank you that you considered us worthy, etc. But he didn't. That's, that's what grace is. We weren't worthy. He didn't consider us worthy, but he loved us anyway. And from our perspective, it's irrational. And yet we were so grateful for that love. Well, there's much mystery on the other side, too. We don't understand his love or his judgment either. Though for myself, I understand his judgment more than I understand his grace. I don't know why my judgment is less severe than my sin, at least, deserves. It's more a surprise to me that I have received mercy. So the real question is, why haven't we got what we've earned by our sin? But at the end of the day, God is God. He created, he owns, he gives, he takes away as he sees fit. And from the vantage point of our own situation and worldview, which is unique in all of history, by the way, 
is not, is not enough for us to make God uh, the defendant and make ourselves the judge, the jury, the prosecuting attorney. As I alluded to earlier, in the Bible where people have tried to put God in the defendant's seat for God's unfair treatment of people, only twice in the Bible is there a response to this question. One is the book of Job. Job laments his own suffering and pleads with God, this is unfair. I have always worshipped you. I have lived a righteous and a generous and wise life, which, by God's own testimony, by the way, was true. What have I done to deserve this? And God's answer to Job is not an answer. God shows up, and then the longest rebuke in all the scripture says, in essence, do you want to tell me when I'm acting rightly or wrongly? Okay, but let me ask you something. Who built the oceans and set its boundaries? Who put the stars in place? Who invented horses? Who's the one who knows when the deer is about to give birth? Who invented wind? Who decided there should be clouds? Job, is it you? A man was mocking a street preacher, speaking to the crowd about the power of God as exercised in creation, where God created all creatures out of the ground. And so what, said the man? I can make something. I can make a rabbit. And he knelt down and started to gather handfuls of dirt. And the preacher said, hold on, make your own dirt. Job, can you make dirt? In other words, until you, Job, can run the physical universe, don't tell me how to run the moral universe. And Job's response I've heard about you, but now I've seen you, and I take it all back. I had no idea who I was dealing with. The answer was not an answer. Job challenges, God, you have to tell me why. God says, I don't have to tell you why. The other place is in Romans, which we've just read. Paul puts this argument in the mouth of some devil's advocate. If God chooses for his people, some and not others, even before they are born, they haven't done anything. If God hardens Pharaoh's hearts and then judges him for it, then how can it possibly be right for him to find fault and to judge at all? And this has been a theological argument for years, centuries. Did God choose me or did I choose God? Did God elect or did I convert? Because if God chose you and not me, then God is unjust and capricious, isn't he? And the Bible answer here, too, is that God doesn't owe anyone an answer. He will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does Moldus say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So for Job, 
And Paul in Romans, when the question is most pointedly asked, isn't God treating people unfairly? The only response given is, who are you to challenge God and tell him you know better than he knows how he should treat people? That you know what he should be doing. Now that may not be a satisfactory answer, but it's the only answer that the Bible gives us. The mind of God and its workings are largely unseen by us. It is not for us to demand that we understand it all. And yes, we do seek to understand and know God as best we can. It's relationship, after all. And really, relationships are about getting to know someone. But I don't even know my wife fully. Am I just surprised to discover things about God that I do not understand? For myself, I've seen, I've experienced enough of his goodness to trust in what appears to be his hard sign. And it does come down to that, trust. Now, so what about all God's violence in the Old Testament? I see some things that help me to understand it a little bit. But at the end of the day, I say God is God. He can and he does do what he sees fit to do with me and with his world. So at the end of all this, what do we do? First, we consider God's other side. If we focus solely on God's love and niceness, we have an unbalanced and therefore wrong understanding of God. Children's Bibles do this all the time. Noah's flood. God kept Noah safe. Isn't it great that God keeps us safe? So when someone's parent dies in a car accident, you might hear the child say something like, I thought God was supposed to keep us safe. The God that they heard about doesn't exist. And what about all those who perished in the flood? Did God keep them safe? And there's, there's what I heard a children's pastor say once. David killed Goliath, and the God that helped David is the same God who goes with you onto the playground tomorrow. So a child goes on the playground and gets laughed at and gets beaten up. This God I heard about either doesn't exist or doesn't care about me, and so on. If this sounds unduly critical, let me say this to you parents and teachers, and I can't emphasize this enough. We cannot show our kids a one-sided picture of God and then expect them to love him when they grow up. They could justifiably say, they lied to me. They lied to me about God. The thing that is most important to me as a parent is that my children grow up and with adoration surrender their lives to God. But I wanted to be God as he is that they adore and surrender to. I don't want them ever to think that I deceive them about God by leaving things out. Now, does that mean when I read my Bible with my seven-year-old, 
I use words like slaughter and massacre? Do I need to show them a picture of David holding Goliath's severed head dripping with blood? Maybe. But I do use words like judgment, death, and punishment, and so on. When we talk about the flood, we do talk about those who died and why. And as my children grow, I will seek to color in their understanding of God's ways. But the Bible says, note the kindness and the severity of God. Focusing on the severity of God's judgment makes us even more astonished at God's grace. If God were to kill me, I'd only be getting what my sins deserved. I deserved the sword. I've been giving forgiveness. I deserved divine wrath. His wrath is poured out on Jesus instead. I don't understand it, but there it is. And whatever was going on in the heart, in the mind of God, I'm, I'm at least glad it was going on. But it makes our ministry that much more urgent. So many people around us are standing in the path of God's just wrath and don't know it or don't care. Who is it about you who is facing judgment? Who around you are you being the fragrance of Christ to? Whom are you praying for? Whom are you praying for an opportunity to speak Christ to? We lift up the cross and say, the wrath has been poured out here already and will not be poured out here again. Why stand in the place of coming judgment when you can stand with Jesus in the only place where you are safe from judgment? Now, does this mean we buttonhole every Christian, everyone we meet, and say, churn or burn? Well, of course not but does lend significance to the living of our lives, the relationship that we, that we have in our interactions with others. We know what it is like to stand in the safe place. We want others to know that same reality. So note the severity of God. And number two, we don't only consider God's other underside. We consider his kindness we do consider his love and his grace. We think about it. We, can, we cannot only consider his judgment, but it's only when seen side by side with his judgment that grace is seen for what it is. Amazing. More amazing than we were otherwise known. We do not know grace until we know judgment. You don't know health until you've been sick. You don't know satisfaction unless you know hunger. We don't know forgiveness unless we know sin. So consider God's good side, his grace, his love, not generally, but his love for you and for those around you. Who is a God that you know isn't God or isn't an airbrushed God? Does he only carry a lamb in his arms, or does he also wield a sword? Is he just nice, or does he love? 
let us know and worship and serve God as he is. The book of Romans, Romans 11, ends with these words. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are a mystery. I think rightly so. There's an element in us that is glad that we don't understand you fully. We're glad that we have questions of you. Questions that you can answer but choose not to. And this is one of those areas. Um, killing is horrific to us. And we don't understand why it was necessary, but you do, and that's good enough for us. Help us, please, remind us, please, to see those around us in light of this question that we might give ourselves to their salvation, to their freedom from judgment. But not just that. Help us to point them toward your grace and your love into real, full, abundant life. And remind us of our own life. Lord, we worship you. We're going to worship you in song now. I pray that you would receive our worship as from people who love you and don't understand you, but love you anyway. You are God, and we acknowledge you as God. In Jesus' name, amen.